0: About two years ago, my family and I decided we would go on a South American holiday. We wanted to go visit family in the country of my wife, where she was born, the country of Ecuador. We decided to go visit some of the relatives there and visit the great-grandmother and the Galapagos Islands, which are a wonderful part of Ecuador. But before going there, our family decided there'd be one more thing we added to the trip. First of all, we would go to the country of Peru and we would hike our way to the great Inca ruins of Machu Picchu. Now the Inca Trail, the traditional trail, is 46 kilometres. And as my wife and I sort of weighed this up, we thought, well, there's two ways you can do it. You can sort of just catch the train, which is quite picturesque, to a city called Agua Calientes, down the bottom of the Inca ruins. You can catch a train there and just get the bus up. And that's what the tourists do. But we thought, no, 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 we want to do the real McCoy. We want to go the four-day Inca Trail. Now, that sounded great, but we've probably failed to recognise that we had three children at this point who weren't expert climbers and had a propensity to catch public transport everywhere they went. But we decided let's do it anyway, so we made our bookings in advance and eventually the time came. We acclimatized in Cusco for a few days, and then we made our way over that 46 kilometer Inca Trail and eventually reached the glorious sunrise looking over the ruins of Machu Picchu. I have to say, in my bucket list of life, that has to be right up there with one of the things I always wanted to do, and I loved it. But if you're gonna hike the Inca Trail to Machu Picchu, you don't simply rock up catch a train. There's preparations that you need to do. You need to prepare, for example, they only allow 500 people per day to be on the trail, so you have to book six to eight months in advance if you wanna hike the Inca Trail. You need to prepare in advance whether you're going to use porters to carry uh, your tent and your sleeping bag, whether somebody else is going to prepare your meals. But probably most importantly, you actually need to prepare by getting in shape. And that was the one thing I knew going there that I would have to work most hard on. You see, I was happy to pay money and get somebody to carry my sleeping bag. I was happy to pay money for somebody to cook me dinner. I was even happy to lay on a foam mattress up in the mountains. But the one thing that I knew was gonna be hard work for me was the walk itself. Because there was no piggybacking, there was no little scooter that you could ride up. You had to walk step after step after step. Day two of the Inca Trail is known for being particularly difficult. The first six kilometres is straight up until you get to around 14,000 feet at Dead Woman's Pass before you make your way over the other side of the mountain. So when I decided, or we decided, to go to Machu Picchu, we had a goal in mind. We could see in the distance, that is the goal that we will be doing. We started counting it down, eight months to go, seven months to go, six months to go. And as we got a bit closer, I started to do what a lot of people do, watch YouTube and Google to find out tips on how to do the Inca Trail. So I started listening to podcasts. I started watching video clips. I knew that day two would be the hardest. But there was one thing that it wasn't just enough to know If I was going to make my goal of doing that four day hike, I knew that I needed to get in shape. Now the camera, they say the camera adds a few pounds. I don't need many pounds added. You see, I enjoy food. And going back a little bit uh, before we went the Inca Trail, I remember if I'm gonna climb the Inca Trail, I need to cut back on the Mars bars. I need to eat not so many sausage sizzles at Bunnings. I needed to get in shape. And so as that goal got closer and closer, my behavior began to change in light of the destination. In light of the goal in the future, my present had to change. The reality of what was coming impacted my everyday living now. And that's also true What is true of my Machu Picchu experience also needs to be true and is true of the Christian experience. You see, once we read the scriptures, we discover that we too have a purpose. We have an end goal. We have a destination to which we are going. But rather than just viewing that as a destination off there in the future, that destination and who it is we will be with in that destination should have an impact in the way that we live now. See, what, let me ask you a question. If you knew what was coming in 10 years' time, what would you do now differently if you knew what it would look like in the future? You see, the Bible says this, God's word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Now, in the ancient world, you would grab, you didn't have lights, you had a lamp, and you could literally see a few steps in front. And many of us don't like that. We actually say, God, just show me the whole street. Well, at one level, God has. He's given us the Lord Jesus Christ and the Lord Jesus in his life, death and resurrection has not only given us a model to follow, but because of our union and our relationship with Christ, we have assurance and a certainty of living in a kingdom that is yet to come. And it's this motivation of living now in light of the future that our gospel, Mark, picks up with today. And so here's what we're going to do in a nutshell. We're going to think particularly in our day and age where it's so easy to get so caught up in everything that's going on in our tip-top crazy world that we fail and lose sight of the bigger picture. So whether it's COVID-19, that's on your heart this morning that's worrying you, whether it's job security, whether it's you're asking the question, am I going to be single for the rest of my life? Whether you're asking questions of what's gonna happen to my children, what's gonna happen to my superannuation and my retirement. We have so many things competing for our, our attention and vying for us to consider it. But friends, we have a greater goal and a bigger picture that we need to zoom back and have a look at. And as that picture that we look at today in Mark's Gospel as we consider the transfiguration of Jesus. You see, the transfiguration or the, the metamorphosis of Jesus on the mountaintop is going to give us insight into a future reality that, particularly for the disciples at that day and age, gave them great impetus once they got down from the mountain. So here's what we're going to do: we're going to first of all walk through this passage. And as we go through this passage, we're just going to make as a result some theological reflections on what this means, why Mark included this in his gospel. And then finally, we are going to ask a so what question. What difference does this have to make with our day and age? As we come to our passage in Mark chapter 9, we want to ask the obvious question. What is going on in the broader context? Well, if you read Mark's Gospel, it basically falls down into two pretty distinct areas. Chapters 1 to 8 focus primarily on what we might say is the ministry of Jesus. The healing of the sick, the raising of the dead, the healing of the demoniac, the walking on water. Jesus, in the first eight chapters, shows and demonstrates his authority. Authority over nature, authority over the spiritual world, and authority over sin, as he is the one who can forgive sins. But then as we come to the second half of the book, particularly in chapters 8, 9, and 10, there's a shift in focus as Jesus begins the journey, the long journey, down to Jerusalem. In chapter 8, by way of background, we come to the place where they're at Caesarea Philippi. They're up in north of Israel at a beautiful spot. Uh, and if you go to Caesarea Philippi, even now you can see in the ruins that there was once an altar right in the heart of the city. The particular altar was dedicated to the Greek god Pan. And Pan, or its cognate and related word pas, means all or every. And this was sort of the, the ancient multiculturalism, multi-religious place where it didn't matter what ethnic group you were from, didn't matter what religious background you were from, you could come and worship whatever God you wanted. So if you were a Hermes man, worship here. If you were Aphrodite or Diana, you could worship here. Zeus, no problems, worship here. It was sort of all people could worship whoever they wanted. And I've got no doubt there's in that context. Jesus actually asks a penetrating question in Mark chapter 8. Who do people say that I am? Am I just another God to add, as it were, to the list? Or am I somebody else? And he puts that question out there. Who do people say that I am? Well, John the Baptist. Some say Elijah, maybe one of the prophets. And Jesus turns a question on them and says, Who do you say that I am? And the correct answer, of course, is given by Peter. You are the Christ. And Jesus takes Peter's answer and he accepts that answer. But then shortly after that reveals something at the end of chapter 8, which is new in the book. In his teaching, Jesus now focused on the fact that he's going to Jerusalem and he'll be handed over into the hands of the religious leaders. He'll be crucified. He will be killed. And after three days, he will be raised back to life. And in chapter 8, 9 and 10, Jesus will continue this message. And yet, even though he speaks loudly, he speaks clearly, the disciples clearly don't understand. You see, while he's talking about death and the hard road of discipleship, they're having arguments over who's going to be the greatest. Can I sit here? Can I sit there? But Jesus comes, and within that context, with their fragile faith, we have this account where Jesus wants to give encouragement to them and a certainty to them, as they make their own journey in becoming disciples of his, and then by extension for us, that we see in this account the exact nature of who Jesus is with the same motivation and goal that we must follow in the way of the cross and the way of servanthood. So as we come to chapter 9, verse 1, we have Jesus just coming to the back end of his teaching where he's been addressing the issue of discipleship And he said to them, the disciples, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. Now you'll notice what it says there. Some standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. Bible scholars have discussed this and many have said perhaps this is talking about Jesus' death and resurrection. And the idea is that some of you disciples here in my presence, Jesus saying, uh, you you won't die until you've seen me exalted. And perhaps that's true, and it is true, in the sense that they did see him uh, taken up into the heavens. But clearly Mark here connects it immediately to what follows in chapter 9, verse 2 and onward. And that is the account where Jesus is what we call transfigured. Or using the Greek, metamorphosized. Changing of appearance. So let's go back and look at verse 2. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him, and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. Now we read here that there's three people that go with Jesus. Jesus had 12 disciples, but it seems that there was an inner three. Peter, James and John. And he takes them after this discussion about his death and their misunderstanding about his death. And he takes them up the mountain. And as he goes up the mountain, probably Mount Hermon, up in the far north of Israel, we have this marvelous situation that takes place where Jesus is transformed. Now, we get a clue here and a hint that something special is about to happen. It says they went up to a high mountain. Now, Israel doesn't have too many high mountains And it's not that Mount Hermon is super high. But when we hear high mountain, we should go back in, at least in our hearing, to the Old Testament. Because mountains are where God does his revealing. So if you were to go back to Exodus, for example, you would find that God reveals himself on the mountain. He gives his commands to people on the mountain, revealing who he is and what he asks of humanity. You go forward a little bit further in the Old Testament, and you'll see Elijah there on Carmel, calling down fire from heaven, and God shows up on the mountain. In Matthew's gospel, we read that Jesus, early on in his ministry, goes up the mountain, and begins his famous Sermon on the Mount. God reveals things in mountaintops. And so here we have Peter, James, and John, they led up the mountain where they were all alone. Then he, Jesus, was transfigured before them. What an amazing sight. This so- this story, by the way, it's one of those helpful stories where the narrator of the story, or the person telling it, adds a few little details which are quite significant. And as we come to the, the passage, a couple of things stand out. First, the clothing. There he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. Forget your nappy sand, forget your beautiful white capped mountains there at Mount Hermon. Jesus is white, white, spectacularly bright. It says in the, in the Psalms that the light is like a garment around our glorious God. And here we get this wonderful picture of astonishing beauty as Jesus is there in this dazzling white that even in the original language, there's this emphasis on shining white intensely. Okay, Jesus, his clothing is what we are drawn to. There is something very different here. And it's as if heaven pulls back just for a moment the reality of who Jesus is and the disciples see more than just a carpenter. They see more than just a teacher, more than just a miracle worker. They see this wonderful image of their glorious Lord in a ray of light. Verse 4. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who was talking with Jesus. So we've got clothing here, but we've also got company. Who's the company? Two heavyweights. You've got a Moses who gave us the law, the Pentateuch, the commandments. And you have Elijah. Elijah was the one who would come before the promised Messiah. And Elijah would be the one who would prepare the way for the restoration of the kingdom. And how Peter knows it's Elijah or Moses, I don't know. Maybe Moses was renowned for having a stellar beard. Or maybe Elijah was known for the clothes that he wore. But whatever the case is, the focus, by the way... Is not on Elijah and Moses. They are there to keep company with Jesus. And that's what's going on. They are talking with Jesus. Now, we don't hear any words that they say because, again, they're not the focus. We will see that the Father will talk about not Moses, not Elijah, but it will talk about Jesus and say, listen to him. But there we are in verse four. They appeared, or there appeared before them Elijah and Moses. And they were talking with Jesus, so we have the company, we have the clothes, and then we have the clumsy conversation. The clumsy conversation. Look at Peter. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Talk about understatement of the millennium. Every Jewish boy worth his yarmulke had Moses as a hero, Elijah as a hero. Now you've got both of them there with the very son of God, and you the best that you can come up with is, it's good to be here. But not only that, he makes this comment, let us put up three tents for you, three shelters, one for that guy, one for that guy, one for you. And we, we read that with a bit of astonishment. Again, it's easy for us to look back and say, You know, not sure what's going on there, Pete. But look at verse 6. It explains what's going on. He did not know what to say, for they were so frightened. Can you picture it? Pete is there. James and John, first of all, they see the glorious Son of God, Jesus, pull back, as it were, the curtains of heaven and show his glory, whiter than white, than white, than white. And then look, there's Moses. Huh. There's Elijah! Huh! Could it get any better? Yes, it can. Keep reading. Verse 7. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. If you're not already afraid enough of seeing Jesus in his glory, you're not already astonished, there's Moses! There's Elijah. If that's not enough, then the cloud moves in. Man, this is getting pretty big. And then the voice. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. I'm not sure what sort of state Peter, James and John were in at that point. Maybe they felt like they needed to crawl under a rock. Maybe Peter blurted out some more stuff just to, Stuff seems to come out of his mouth. But whatever the case is, the emphasis as the story unfolds is not upon Moses. It's not upon Elijah. It's upon the glorious, transfigured Lord Jesus, who the Father says in this one, I am well pleased. We've actually heard the Father talk like this before. Chapter 1 at Jesus' baptism. Similar words, but they're directed to Jesus. You are my son, in whom I take delight, or in whom I am well pleased. Here, though, this statement of validation is given not so much for Jesus, but it's actually given for Peter, James, John, and you and I to know from the Father. This Jesus, who's been validated by Moses, who's been validated by Elijah, who is the one that they pointed forward to, he's arrived. Listen to him. And that is where our story concludes here in this passage. Now let's do some thinking about the theological ideas of what Mark is trying to communicate to his audience and by extension to us. So now that we've gone through the story, let's pause, put the video on hold, and just do some reflecting on what is going on in this story. So we've got a bit of historical detail. We know when it took place. It likely took place at the place of Mount Hermon. We know that after this, there's a theological discussion amongst the disciples where they talk about what happened. But what is Mark trying to do and communicate to us as we listen to this story? Well, I think there are three things that stand out about this story that we'll look at before we ask the so what question What does this have to do with us? First, I think this passage says that Jesus' glorious appearance demonstrates who he is. I'll say that again. I think this passage indicates to us Jesus' glorious appearance demonstrates who he is. You see, the focus of this account is not Moses. The focus of this account is not Elijah. The focus of this account is not really even Peter, James, and John. You see, when the passage unfolds, and even though Peter makes this outlandish statement about let's build tent for the other guys, the focus is clearly on the glory of the Lord Jesus. You see, he has changed. He is different. He's not the carpenter from Nazareth alone. He's the glorious son of God. And this is the first time the disciples have ever seen him like this. Now, they've seen him do miracles. They've seen him do wonders. They've seen him... Uh, Raise people back from the dead. But even from Peter's response, we see here that they are astonished when Jesus reveals his glory. You see, Jesus demonstrates who he is and he is the focus of this event. You see, there's nothing mentioned about Moses' clothes. We don't read anything about Elijah's clothes. And when the booming voice from the father comes, it doesn't say, listen to Moses. It doesn't even say, listen to Elijah or listen to their testimony. No, it says, this is my son. Listen to him. Jesus' raiment, his clothes, are the ones that are being described. Jesus is the one that Moses and Elijah come next to. He, Jesus, is the centerpiece. Moses and Elijah, we don't get any words from them. The only words that are mentioned are, apart from Peter's over understatement, are the words of the Father. And who are they about? They are about the Lord Jesus. You see, what are Moses and Elijah even doing there? Well, as I said, Moses represents the Old Testament law and the great parts of Scripture. And certainly if you were to ask any Jewish person in Jesus' day, Moses was the one who gave them that which was closest to their heart, namely the law. But you know, in Deuteronomy 18, verse 18, Moses predicted that there would come one, a prophet greater than himself. It says this in Deuteronomy 18 verse 18. I will raise up for them, being Israel, a prophet like you, that is Moses, from among their fellow Israelites, and I will put my words in his mouth. Moses is there to represent that one greater than himself, the one he anticipated, had now come. And that was the glorious Lord Jesus. So as Peter is there, his focus is not on Moses. His focus is not on Elijah. Elijah was the one, as I mentioned, who would come and be the restorer or really set the path straight for the Messiah to return. And Jesus elsewhere would reveal that's John the Baptist and the new Elijah has already come. But here the focus is clearly we're meant to understand as Peter was and James and John that Jesus' glory demonstrates who he is. He is the one of promise. He is the one that Moses wrote about. He is the one Elijah pointed forward to. Jesus is the one that we should expect. Jesus' glorious appearance demonstrates who he is. But There's a second thing I observe in this passage and that is this. Jesus' glorious appearance depicts the certainty of our future. Jesus' glorious appearance depicts the certainty of our future. Now, one of the things that's going on in Mark's gospel, Jesus, particularly in chapters 8, 9, and 10, we have a bit of a cycle that goes on. It normally starts off with Jesus uh, will do a miracle. The disciples will usually have a response. Jesus will then give a teaching on discipleship which is usually misunderstood, and then the disciples will say something and Jesus will offer some sort of correction. And here as we come to this passage, Jesus will continue to do that, but as he continues to prophesy and predict what will happen to him, he wants to give these disciples assurance that though they are going to Jerusalem and he will die, he will be raised back to life. Jesus has spoken to the disciples about this, and maybe, just within the context of chapter 8, they, and even in chapter 9 and 10, they're still confused. They're focused on the here and now. They're worried about bigger things. Who's going to be the greatest? Can I be at your right hand? Can I be at your left hand? And they have these questions going around in their mind, and God, in his grace, as the Lord Jesus goes up on the mountain. Jesus reveals his glory. The father offers this validation. This is my son. Listen to him. And it's as if to say, I am fully in control. I'm going to give you a glimpse of a coming reality. I am the true king. And it's like he pulls back the the curtains of heaven and he shows momentarily his great glory. That he is more than just a carpenter. That he's more than just a religious teacher. That he's more than just somebody going around sharing good news. He wants to reveal that he is the living son of God. And that that reality will soon come to pass. Yes, they are on their way to Jerusalem. But that is not the end goal. The end goal will be when the Lord Jesus Christ is exalted. And one day, he will no longer be having to hide, as it were, his glory. But every knee will bow and tongue confess that he is the one who has come. That we might bow and acknowledge he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. But his doing this, his revealing himself, I think partly is due to the fact that he wanted to show the disciples. Just to give them maybe that encouraging glimpse. Keep going. Everything I said will come to pass. The Son of Man will be delivered over to the Gentiles. He will be flogged. He will be crucified. But on the third day, he will rise from the dead. Jesus' glorious appearance depicts the certainty not only of the disciples, but also of our future. And this brings us to a third observation that we can make from this passage. And that is Jesus' glorious appearance demands a response in the present Jesus' glorious appearance demands a response in the present. Many years ago, I lived in the great city of Chicago, one of the best cities in the world, and I say, Chi-town is my town. I love the city of Chicago. But here's the thing about Chicago. When I first arrived there as a 19-year-old, I remember walking around the streets, La-Salle, Chicago Avenue, and I'd walk down these different streets Michigan Avenue or Chicago Avenue. And every now and then you'd be walking around and you get completely lost. And that's a natural part of just getting your bearings when you move to a new city. But here's the nice thing about Chicago. Back in the early nineties, when I lived there, Chicago had three of the world's five tallest buildings. And so somebody gave me this good advice. They said, listen, if you are ever lost in Chicago downtown, here's what you need to do. You need to look up and identify, okay, that's the John Hancock building. Look over the other direction. There's Sears Tower. And he said, when you get your bearings on these large buildings, you can orient yourself to where you are in regards to the city. And I think that's what Jesus is doing here. And God the Father is doing here with the transfiguration. They're saying to the disciples, listen, this is where we're going. We're going to Jerusalem. Son of man is going to be crucified. You are on the road of discipleship. How do you remain on that road when Jesus is raised back to life and exalted? And he tells them this way, the father, this is my son, listen to him. You see, the problem with the disciples is that they're so enamored with what's going on. Maybe it's the feeding of the 5,000 and multitudes. Maybe they know that there's more healings on the way. And they're looking down and they're looking at the immediate and they're looking at the present But they're failing to listen and understand who Jesus is. And so the Father reminds them, this is my son. Listen to him. Don't listen to the Pharisees. Don't listen to the Sadducees. Don't listen to, even if they're genuine, all the concerns of the people. Listen to my son. And friends, if ever there was an exhortation for us in this passage, it is exactly that. Because Jesus' glory has appeared. Because God. Jesus has made known the Father, and particularly for us on the other side of the cross. We not only have certainty of the future, but that should then impact the way that we live now. Friends, Jesus' glorious appearance demands a response in the present. This leads us to a question then. So what? What difference does this make? Well, here's a couple of ways that we can think about it. First, if you're like me, The big challenge at the moment is not the recognition that Jesus is glorious. I believe that, I sing that, I preach that. I think the challenge for me in this passage and the challenge for you in this passage, the so what question, I think the application is fairly straightforward. Listen to him. Listen to Jesus. You see, if you're like me, the last few weeks... There have been so many voices in my ears. Can you go to work? Can you buy this product? Is it available at the shopping centre? Are we flattening the curve? What's happening with our super? How's education going for your kids? And all of these voices from social media, from news, financial planners, from family members, all of these things can take us off the rails, not through any ill-conceived or or wicked plan, as much as they can block our ears from hearing the voice that is most important, and that is the Lord Jesus. Now that we have some downtime, you have some downtime, maybe you're not at work at the moment, You've, you've got to take some time off, I would say the application to you, listen to him. Take some time. Read the scriptures. Maybe you've never read the whole Bible through. Maybe you want to find a good Christian book to read and just to grow in your knowledge. Do a course online. Stretch yourself. Listen to him. Some of us are worried about our security, our financial security. How are we going to pay our mortgage? How are we going to retire now that our stocks have fallen off the cliff? The application in this passage, listen to him. Remind yourself of what Jesus has doing. That we need to treasure things that are far more important than just the here and now. But we need to fix our eyes and our gaze on that inheritance which will never spoil or fade. That a thief won't steal and a moth in rust won't destroy. He might be saying to you today, listen to him. For others of us, we might have that anxiety and that angst. And we need to be reminded of the words of Jesus. You're weary. You're burdened. Come to me and I will give you rest. Listen to him. Friends, I think as I prepared for Machu Picchu, knowing the destination, knowing that's where I was going, it changed how I behaved in regards to what I ate exercises that I would do, things I would need to start doing, things I needed to stop doing. Friends, you and I are on a journey to that celestial city where we will bow before that king who is glorious, who is splendor is wrapped as a garment around him and we will delight in him. How do we know that's true? Because he has shown us as he's shown the disciples. For us now on the other side of the cross, even more so as we celebrate the resurrected Jesus. But if you're like me, it is so easy to come down the mountain and to get consumed in the day-to-day affairs that we forget the big picture. Friends, we need to live today in the present in the light of that reality of the future that is yet to come. A few years ago, I got a GPS for Father's Day and I remember it's fantastic it had Sean Connery's voice on it and so you'd be driving along and it'd say in 500 meters turn right and it was fantastic hearing that and every now and then I'd be driving along and I'd get uh, just taken up with the dulcet tones of Sean Connery that I'd actually not pay attention to what he would suggest and he would say in 500 meters turn right and 500 meters would come and I'd just keep going waiting to hear the next Command from Sean. But in doing so, I would sometimes miss the the turn and I'd keep driving. And then he would say, recalibrating, recalibrating. And then he would come up with a new plan to get you where you needed to go. Friends, may God recalibrate our lives around the reality that Jesus is glorious. Jesus is Lord. He's demonstrated it on the mount by demonstrating who he is. He's shown us the certainty of our future. And that reality needs to recalibrate the way that we think about going through life. Whether that's taking our anxiety and recalibrating into the truth that Jesus is Lord. Whether it's thinking about our finances or lack of finances. And we need to recalibrate and trust in Jesus as Lord, whether it's being anxious about what the future holds for our work, for our family, all real concerns. But the exhortation to you and I this morning, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. May you and I have ears that are willing to hear and hands and feet that are willing to obey for Jesus' sake. Amen.